please stand for the reading of the word. Um, the reading this morning is from 1 Peter, verses 1 through 5, and you can find it on page 1016 in your pew Bible. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of God. Have you ever felt misrepresented, misunderstood? Have your best intentions ever been turned against you? Or things you've done been twisted to seem as though they're negative? Sometimes I feel that this is happening to uh, God's church today. But it's nothing like was being experienced in the first couple of centuries. We see just a sampling of this in the, the words of a critic named Lucian, who lived in the late second century. He wrote, the poor wretched, that's the Christians, have convinced themselves that they're going to be immortal and live for all time in consequence of which they despise death and even willingly give themselves into custody, most of them. Furthermore, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they're all brothers of one another. By denying the gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist and living under his laws. And you could see how he mocks Christianity for incredible strengths within Christianity. They don't fear death because they know, they believe, they're immortal. They have eternal life. What a wonderful gift that is to go through life without having to fear the end. But he thinks it's delusion. He talks about the unity of the church, the preciousness of people from varieties of cultures and nations coming together as one and living together as one. And he mocks it. And then he talks about Christ, who gave his life for all of us, who gave us the greatest moral teaching ever laid out for humanity. And he disparages it. That's the culture in which Peter writes. 
And we saw last week that he summarized his book in verse 19. What do you say to a people going through this? Peter writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Tells us two things. Trust God. I know it looks bad. I know you're enduring what you don't want to endure, what's unfair and unjust. But God has a perfect plan, his will. Trust him. And then secondly, just do good. No matter how it's taken or twisted, do good. And then he moves to chapter 5, and it, it seems as though he jumps to an entirely new subject when he says, so I exhort the elders among you. And so what's the connection? And, and there's clearly a connection because he uses the word so. So I exhort you. The connection is for us to be able to trust ourselves to God to continually do good, to endure what's going on, we need the support of one another. And that's the body of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray today that we as a church would hear your words. We would be drawn back into your vision of what the church is, how we are there for one another, how we support one another, we encourage one another, we lift each other up. Father, I pray for the elders among us that they might hear your words, your call, or any prospective elders. And I pray for the congregation that we might hear our responsibility. And Lord, I pray for those who are not yet believers in Christ that they might see in this passage a countercultural call that's different from our world, but they might see the beauty of that call, of the character of Christ that you call us out to live. In Christ we pray. Amen. When I became a Christian, the day I became a Christian, <clears throat> The man who told me about Christ then said, now that you've become a Christian, what you need to do is you need to get into relationship with other Christians. You need that support. And he used a very common illustration from his booklet. And he said, you know, if you have a fire and you take one log out of that fire and set it aside, it will quickly die. But if you leave the logs together, the fire continues. So Peter moves in this letter now to, we need the church to support one another. We can't be logs out by ourselves or we will not endure, we will collapse, we will compromise. So he turns to the church and he talks about those who are given the responsibility to stoke the fire to make sure the flame continues. 
And those are the elders of the church. He's called the elders to be the leaders in the church. Now we see this <clears throat> in the early church. Paul writes both to Timothy and Titus about how they are to ensure that the elders have very specific qualities that are necessary for the leaders of Christ's church. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul realizes he may never return because he's going off to, to Jerusalem, he doesn't know what awaits him other than prison, he calls the elders together to commission them to ensure that they are taking care of the church. Now, the Bible doesn't give any commands that a church has to function, and excuse me, the church has to have a particular kind of, of leadership. But we at Westgate are following this biblical model where elders lead the church. Now, the Latin word for elder is pastor. And so at Westgate here, we see that the three terms are interchangeable. Elder, pastor or shepherd, and overseer, which we see in this passage. The title elder refers to the maturity of these leaders. Pastor title to past the title of pastor to the shepherd in care. And of course the oversight to the leadership that they bring the church. Also notice in this passage that Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. I mean, here Peter, who is one of the foundational members of the church, the church depended upon him throughout the world. He calls himself an apostle at the beginning of the book, and yet here he refers to himself as fellow elder. He brings himself down to their level, and this should lead us to the impression that elders are equal. They're all on the same level. None is to be more esteemed than others. None has a more, is more important than others. The elders function as a team. They are the leaders. And so we see in the functions of the elders, the words that Paul said to those elders from Ephesus in chapter 20. He said, pay careful attention to yourself. And I say, elders, pay careful attention to these words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
Christ died and sacrificed to draw us to himself, but he also created the church itself. The church is his body. Elders, Christ has entrusted himself, his work, the perpetuity of the gospel to you. He continues in that passage, telling them that they should be teaching the word of God, correcting doctrinal errors, protecting the church from false teachers, helping those in need, and helping everyone grow spiritually and reach maturity. That's the role of the elders. So what's the congregational response? The elders are to lead. We read in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Go. Now, he, he seems to single out the younger people. And we say, well, what does that mean? Uh, older people don't need to follow the leadership of the elders? Um, not one commentator comes draws that conclusion. And it seems that... Younger people might be addressed because they're most likely to resist the leadership of older people. I know we've had the authority, reject authority uh, culture here for quite a while in America, and uh, perhaps there is at least a little bit of that as younger people were trying to find their way. So it appears he's singling out the younger people, but he is speaking to the entire church be subject to the elders. Now, this word subject is the same word that Peter uses when he talks about all Christians being subject to the government, slaves being subject to their masters, wives being subject to their husbands. Congregation, be subject to your elders. What he's saying there is not serve them as though they're God and they can never be wrong. Um, what he is saying is follow their leadership. Don't resist it. Don't put roadblocks in the way. Give them the benefit of doubt. Let them lead. Unleash them to lead. Out a little further, we're going to see that one of the commands to elders is to not dominate the congregation. So we want to put these two thoughts together. Yes, the congregation is to follow the leadership, but the leadership is not to act in authoritarian ways in dominating and controlling the congregation. And we see the beautiful blend of these two coming together in the decision that's made in Acts chapter 6. Uh, the apostles were, were struggling to do everything that was demanded of them. And they found that as they were tending to the physical needs of the congregation, that they were, they were no longer praying. They were no longer reading the word like they should. And so they said, this is a big problem because our spiritual lives are critical in the way we lead. So they had an idea. 
and that was to choose seven men among them to serve the people, to take care of their needs, to free them up for the spiritual aspects of their leadership. And Acts 6, 5 says, what they said pleased the entire gathering. And so what you see is you have leaders who don't dominate. They're not authoritarian. They're not pushing things onto the congregation, but they lead in such a way that the congregation sees the wisdom of their leadership and the congregation comes together in agreement. And that's, of course, our desire at Westgate Church. So, for a church to thrive, you have to have leaders who desire and want to serve God to the fullest, spiritual pastors and overseers. And we have to have a congregation that is open to their leadership, encouraging of it and following it. Now, the passage gives us a number of commands of how not to lead and how to lead. And as we listen to these, he's speaking to the elders. So elders, we need to listen very carefully to what he's saying. But you'll also see that this is the way all of us should live. He said, shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. So let's take each one of those. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Now I know the nominating committee met early at 8.30 and they might be looking at this and saying, hmm, Maybe we should remove that verse from the Bible because we need to get people to say yes. <laughs> but it is here in the scripture. Why? Because elders need to have the heart of elders. Elders need to see God's vision for their work. They need to value that ministry as God values it. Because there's going to be sacrifice in that ministry. There's going to be difficulties and struggles. And so they need to wholeheartedly buy into what God wants of them. God wants them to enjoy their ministry. If you're in under compulsion, your heart's not in it. You won't be sacrificial. And certainly, you won't have any joy in it because you don't see the value of it. You haven't bought into that. So, elders, you need to desire it, to want it. And through those hard times, go back and remember, God's called you. The Holy Spirit has called you for this very special task. It says, don't serve for sordid gain. In other words, don't, don't do it for money. Of course, uh, only some of our elders are paid staff, and scripture 
says that's very warranted. Uh, labor is worthy of his wages. Those who invest themselves more time in, in preaching and teaching, those who are serving full time should be remunerated. However, the job should never be about money in any way. Uh, during the first century, there's often people going unemployed. And some might look to the church and say, oh, if you get to be this pastor, you can make a decent living. Uh, that's not the reason to become an elder. It shouldn't be about money at all. And I think we should go a step further is that when we think of money as a church and we're negotiating salaries, it should never be like the business world. Uh, my son just changed jobs and he was telling me that when he went in for the negotiation, he uh, targeted, when they gave him the offer, he said, well, he wanted tens of thousands more than the offer. And then he said, but they expected that. So that's why they gave the lower number because they, they wanted to go up. And so what you had was the company trying to pay as little as possible and my son trying to get as much as possible. That's not the way it should work in the church. It should be the opposite. It should be a pastor willing to take whatever a church can really offer him. And the church desiring to pay that pastor what is fair and just and right. Uh, I know a pastor who went into a church that uh, just could not pay him a, a salary, much of a salary. Uh, they needed him working full time. And, but they said, we know this salary is really low. It's not our intention to keep it low. We will raise it when we can, but this is all we can afford. The pastor's attitude was, as long as that's your attitude, you're not trying to keep me poor. I will take what you can afford. Uh, we don't serve for sordid gain. Then he says, elders, don't dominate the congregation. Don't be domineering. So how do you lead if you can't say, you got to follow? You lead one by example, he's going to say. You lead by sharing in such a way, giving a vision, setting a vision, that the congregation buys into that vision. General Eisenhower, before he was president, was asked the key to his leadership. And he took out a string and he placed it on the table. And he said, push the spring, string. So the captain pushed the string and it all balled up. He pulled the string out again and he said, now take the string and draw it to you. And of course the string followed perfectly. That's the type of leadership that God is calling us to. Not to push our way through, but to speak in such a way, to vision in such a way, to mirror what God wants so clearly that the congregation is drawn to follow us.
Now what you'll notice in these, these qualities or these commands is they really mirror Christ. He has said, lead by example. And that's exactly what Christ did. In fact, the words that Peter uses in this passage draw us to pictures of Christ himself. For Peter says, shepherd the flock. Those are the exact words that Peter heard at a campfire after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, of course, had denied Jesus three times after Jesus had been arrested. So after the resurrection, Jesus is on the beach. The disciples come in after seeing him, and they're, they're cooking around a charcoal fire. And it was around the charcoal fire that Peter denied Jesus three times. So Jesus has the perfect setting to restore Peter. So he asks Peter a question three times. Do you love me? And Peter's response is, yes, I love you. And Jesus says, each time essentially, either shepherd my flock, feed my sheep, take care of my church by shepherding it. That's the imagery that Peter has as he says these words. Shepherd the flock, just like Jesus was the good shepherd. And notice the one question Jesus asks. Do you love me? And that's the most important question of any elder. Do you love Christ? If not, don't be a shepherd. He uses another word filled with imagery when he says, clothe yourself with humility. For in that image is Peter. The night Jesus was arrested is with the other disciples. Jesus stands up, he takes off his clothes, and he clothes himself with a towel. He then goes from disciple to disciple and washes their feet as their servant. The humility. The shame was so great in washing somebody's feet that when he came to Peter's feet, Peter said, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. We have a picture of Jesus Christ in these words, the picture of humility. And so when we look at the, the other words where it says, don't do it for shameful gain, we remember Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The only possession Jesus had at the end of his life was his, his robe. We see the words, to not dominate, do not be domineering. And we hear Jesus saying, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. We read, don't do it under compulsion. And we hear Jesus' words ringing 
nobody takes my life from me. I give it willingly. Elders, leaders, let us have that image of Jesus Christ as we lead. But there's another thing about these, these qualities, and that is they are countercultural. They were countercultural in Peter's day, and they're countercultural today. I mean, if we are going to stand out, if we're going to be lights, we cannot be like the world. We need to stand out differently, and we see that in these. Today, there's a growing sense of victimhood where it seems like most people just, they want to be victims. And yet we see here the call to suffer for Christ, to endure it, and not to be complaining about it. Uh, we see a sense of entitlement. A pursuit of money, a desire for power, uh, emphasis on expressive individualism, and the attitude of, if you don't think the way I do, there's something wrong with you. And what we see is that these qualities address each one of them. Entitlement is met by, met by the command to shepherd to give your life and care for others. The pursuit of money is countered by the command, don't do it for shameful gain. The desire for power is met by the command to not be domineering. Expressive individualism is met by the command to be humble. And the attitude of you should think like I do, again, is countered by humility. We need to live counterculturally and be led by leaders who model that. He continues, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice this, he says, all of you. Now he's turned to the church again. For elders to lead the way God leads and not be domineering, we have to be humble. For a congregation to follow that leadership, the congregation has to be humble. It's the only way it's going to work. We can't think we know it all, we've got the best. We can't be looking out for ourselves first, wanting the church to, to be what we want it to be. We need humility. But notice, it's humility towards one another. You see, I believe it's possible to think we're humble and not be humble. For instance, we might think, well, I'm never, I'll never brag about myself. I don't think I'm better than other people. You know, I don't, I don't promote myself, therefore I'm humble. But we can have that humble attitude but not be humble toward one another. We cannot listen to one another because our ideas are better than theirs. We can be critical of the church because it isn't meeting my needs. We can be upset because I'm not getting the role I want. We can be bitter toward each other 
And in each case, we might be humble and not bragging, but we're not humble toward one another. That's the glue that holds the church together, even cited in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Humility should be the essence of the leaders and the congregation because it's the essence of Jesus Christ. It's the core character quality of him. We read in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among you, which is in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not, acquired, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being formed in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If Jesus was not humble, he would never have put aside his glory as God and taken on the flesh of humanity. If Jesus was not humble, he would not have accepted rejection. If Jesus was not humble, he would not have allowed them to whip him and crown him with a crown of thorns. If Jesus was not humble, he certainly wouldn't have let his creation crucify him. The core quality of Jesus what makes him tick is his humility. It needs to be the center of a church. The core quality of Satan is arrogance. In a passage in uh, Isaiah 14 that many scholars think is a reference to Satan, five times he says, I will, and each time it's I will replace God. The last one says, I will be like God. In the garden, his temptation to Eve is, eat from this tree and you can be like God. Core quality of Jesus is humility. God becomes man. The core quality of the devil and the temptation he brings to all of us is, though you are man, you can be like God. God calls us to humility. We're to clothe ourselves with it, but how do we do that? We don't do it by trying harder. It's, see, it, it's not natural to be humble. Uh, back in 1979, Christopher Lash, as he looked at uh, the cultural landscape, he, he wrote a book concluding about the culture, said, the book is called Culture of Narcissism. We're about ourselves. But that was 1979, so uh, he wrote another book, uh, 2018, and looked at the culture, and he entitled The Culture of Narcissism. Gene Twenge, of the foremost, I, I would say the foremost expert on studying the generations and the upcoming generations. In 2010, the name of her book was The Narcissism Epidemic. She looked at a, another generation in 2014 and wrote the book Generation Me. And now her most recent book is called I-Gen, 
for the generation that grows up with the iPhone, but also the generation is focused on I. Now, I say these things not to pick on any generation, because he pretty much covers the entire landscape. I say this because their natural bent is narcissism to consider ourselves first, to exalt ourselves above others. That's natural to us. It's unnatural to be humble. We can't just put it on. We can't change like that. But this passage gives us what does bring us to change. It says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. See, three things we need, or at least each one of these, can impact our humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Very often when we compare ourselves to others, we uh, might exalt ourselves and kind of lower them. We look at our strengths, at least I do this, I look at my strengths and other people's weaknesses and say, yeah, look at them better. Uh, but see, I can't do that when I look at God. When I see God for all he is and that I'm simply his creation, I am very humbled. He says here, <clears throat> humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that you may be exalted at the proper time. You see, the first Peter regularly talks about the glory that, of course, Christ is going to receive, but the glory that we'll receive. And so if we have a sense that at the end we're going to be glorified, it's okay not to be glorified right now. Uh, look at it this way. If I knew that at the end of the day I was going to get a million dollars, and I see $10 laying on the ground, uh, and somebody else is reaching for it, I can let them have it. If I'm going to have a glory with Jesus Christ for eternity, I don't need to reach for glory from other people. It leads to my humility. And the third thing we see in this passage is humble ourselves by casting all our anxieties on him. Now, how do these fit together? How does humility fit with casting our anxieties on, on Christ? They fit because we have a tendency to want God to work things our way. I mean, have you ever felt, you know, this is happening, but God... How about this plan? Why don't you do it this way? I, I was struck as I was reading John 11 the other day where Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and he's going to die and leaves it. Jesus waits and waits and waits. And then he comes after Lazarus dies. And the people see Jesus weeping and they say, Oh, he loved, he loved Lazarus so much. And some of them say, yeah, if he loved him so much, why didn't he come when he was sick? Because he probably could have healed him. You see, they had different plans than Jesus had. So too, we have different plans. 
in a sense, we're saying, God, do it my way. That's the opposite of humility. But if we let God do it his way, who's going to look out for number one? Who's going to look out for me? I mean, we have self-interests, and many of them are good self-interests. Who's going to look out for those if we don't? And the answer is God. Cast your anxieties on him. He cares for you. You know, we, last week we talked about Romans 8:28. God causes all things to work together for good. And we said, you know, that isn't for our personal good he's talking about. He isn't saying, I want to follow Bruce's plan. The good is God's plan. And if we love him and we are aligned with his purpose, then that good plan of God becomes ours. And it may include suffering. It may include injustice. And what's interesting is just a couple verses later, Paul says this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What he's saying is this. God's running his plan. He's revolving around himself, not you, not me. But you can let God run the plan because he cares for you. And if you ever doubt his care, go to the cross. There's many things in my life that I doubt the care and the love for God. My mother died when I was one years old. My brother died in a car crash on his 22nd birthday, a year and a half after he became a Christian. My father died of a heart attack three months after I became a Christian and wasn't able to have an impact on him. As a pastor, I've been by the bedside of many who I wish God had just saved them or healed them. In those cases, I could say, God, do you care? There's one place I go where I cannot ask that question, and it's at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. There he showed his love for me so great. He showed his love for everybody so great that he took our sins and died on the cross for them. When I go to that cross, the question of does God care is settled once for all. He does care. He just has a different value system, a different timetable. But I know he cares. And if he cares, I don't have to be consumed with looking out for myself. I can be consumed with looking out for the things of God and trusting him, humbly trusting him to care for me. Our Father, may we be the church that Christ wants us to be. May we be the leaders that Christ describes here. May we unite with those leaders to accomplish your purposes for your glory. Here as we develop into the, the character of Christ by supporting one another, encouraging one another. And Lord, may you unleash us into a world around us that may misunderstand us may misrepresent us, but you love them, and Lord, give us that love for them that will go out 
and we'll take insults even if they're not deserved because we will trust ourselves to you and we will do good. Amen.